0: In chapter 2, uh, verse 5 to 10, and then 16 through 18. Now there was, in the citadel of Susa, a Jew tribe. A, whoa, I need to bring it closer. <laughs> a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive was Jeho- Jehoachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither mother nor father. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure, and she was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female assistants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And we're going to jump down to verse 16. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any. Sorry. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval. In more. In more more than any of the other virgins, so she. So he set a crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet for all his nobles and the officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed the gifts with royal liberality. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you um, for the opportunity that we have on this Sunday um, to hear about the life of Esther and to hear um, the message that you have for us um, through this scripture. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us open hearts um, and open minds, and um, that you would speak um, sweetly to each and every one of us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: All right. Let me know if you can hear me. Can you guys hear me okay? Good. All right. Well, uh, my name is Vince, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all on this lovely, lovely Sunday. It's not as hot as it's been, which is how many of you find that to be a relief? It's been so hot that I just decided, you know, you grow up in San Diego and you take the ocean for granted. And so I was like, not this summer, Satan. I'm going out. (laughs) <laughs> I am getting in that water, cooling down. So um actually I was at the Goodwill in downtown and I saw this surfboard. And uh Yeah. Uh, and here's the deal. I grew up here and I know how to boogie board and I know how to play basketball, but none of my friends surfed and I'm like, dude, I'm a ho dad. I don't I like love to act like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the ocean, but I don't know how to surf. And you know, not this year, Satan, right? So I decided to go out and get this surfboard. And uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been out there whenever I could find an hour and just shark bait out in the water, just slacked in the water, trying to roll. And they talk about turtle rolls. And I'm watching YouTube videos. And I've got scuffed up knees because I don't know how to get the sand out of the wax. And, all. you know, I just don't know what I'm doing. But um I'm out there. I was telling a buddy about this. And uh, he's like, Dude, what? Well, I mean, like, it sounds really hard, don't you want to do lessons? And we're, we're, we're talking about all this stuff. And and um, he he said, well, what do you really enjoy about going out there? Because there's something you obviously enjoy. I said, dude, I love being out there, even if I just never figure out how to surf. <laughs> Laying on the surfboard with the waves taking you up and down, it's so serene. It's so beautiful, and you look out on the surface of the water, it's just like calm and and gorgeous and you can see for miles and he says, yeah, but that's just because you don't know what's under the water. (laughs) You don't know what's swimming under you. And then he sends me this picture and I was like, dude, that's so wrong. Like every time I catch a wave now, I'm like looking to the side like, is there a shark anywhere? And it's terrifying And so I just prefer to keep my eyes on the surface, on appearances. And so this is what's on my mind as I'm reading Esther chapter 2 this week. And um, lo and behold, I see appearances everywhere. So the things we're going to talk about today in Esther chapter 2, we're going to discover three things. Number one, God is at work in spite of appearances. Number two, our world is obsessed with appearances. And number three, God frees us to see beyond appearances. All right, you guys ready? Cool. So number one, God is at work in spite of appearances. He's always at work, even when it doesn't seem like he's there, right? And you got to briefly look back at, Kenny preached a masterpiece last week, so I won't re-preach it, but briefly look back at kind of the setting, Xerxes, greatest king in the world at this time, Persian Empire decides that he's going to throw a frat party for his buddies, right? And they drink for 180 days. He gets drunk, starts running his mouth, starts bragging about how beautiful his smoking hot wife is, right? And um, eventually he decides, I'm, I'm going to show her off to thousands of drunk guys, right? <laughs> for reasons that um, still astound me, she doesn't want to come, you know? Um, and of course, her defiance in this culture is, an incredible act of bravery, because she's part of a system that's hierarchical, part of a patriarchal structure, part of a culture that's shame-based and honor. And if you do something like this, as the queen, like, it's cultural crisis. So Xerxes calls this cabinet meeting. They decide that she has to be stripped of her crown and banished, and that catches us up to what we just read in chapter 2. It's taken this guy, if you read the dates, it's taken this guy four years Four years after he lost his temper, after he divorced his wife, he wakes up one day, you know, listening to country music, drinking, you know, hanging out with his buddies, Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and Jose Cuervo, and there's only friends left at this point. He's totally depressed. You get the picture, right? What's he do? He doesn't turn to God. Who's he turned to? It says in verse 2, he turns to his attendants, the NIV says. The ESV says, young men. Really, Xerxes? You couldn't afford better advice than young single guys? He essentially walks into the fraternity and says, guys, I'm having a really rough go of it. What do you think we should do? And lo and behold, what do the frat guys say? Got a great idea. Single young women. That's what we need to do. That's gonna fix it. And so that's what he does. He 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 basically puts out this order to get all the single beautiful young women of the kingdom. And I just want to pause and say a quick side point, not the main point but we all go through rough times, we all go through difficulty, if you don't turn to God, you're going to turn to someone else. Whose advice are you taking? Are you taking godly wisdom, or are you taking foolish wisdom from people who, you know, do not have the mind of of God? So Xerxes, um, as one uh, commentator said, Xerxes, the jerksies, (laughs) follows their advice. I had to put it in there. It was too good. Uh, And they send these representatives out to get all these single girls from around the kingdom and bring them back to the king's harem. Some scholars think as many as 1,000 women. And then the way it worked was everyone who had been taken from their homes, and, and like the movie, Taken, right? And where's Liam Neeson when you need him <laughs> with his particular set of skills, right? To, anyway, so they take them. They don't have a choice, according to verse 8. And the young helpless women are brought in for a year. Each of these women has to undergo beauty treatments and trainings to get ready for their big night, one night with the king. And what are they doing on that very special night? Are they going on a date? No. No. Does it start with, hey, tell me about your family. What's your favorite color? No, none of that, right? It starts right at bedtime, right? He's like a lot of people in our culture, Let me sleep with you, then we'll figure out if I want to get to know you, right? And, um, ooh, a groan went through the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if that was, like, self-loathing or if that was, like, pointed at somebody else, but that was, like, a... (laughs) So in the morning, the girls returned to the harem. You see this, like, imagine a whole year. At least 400, maybe 1,000 girls. One every night. 400 nights, you're waiting in line, you got your ticket... You know, and you're next in line, number 387. First of all, ew. Gross, right? secondly, like, here comes comes your moment, your night's tonight. If you please the king, your crown, Miss Persia. If you don't please the king, you're not just sent back to your village, right? You're sent to his harem to be a concubine, um, and you probably go live in a nice place in the palace. You never marry. You never have kids. You never have a career. Your life is essentially plus but feels somewhat pointless. Right? Or, if you're lucky, you may become a concubine and, you know, you're just free to do whatever he asks of you. Or, if you're really, really lucky, of course, you could, uh, if you're the one he likes the most, you become queen. And uh, this is where we meet one of the girls who was taken, a little Jewish girl. She was an orphan. Her name was Esther. And she'd been raised by her uncle or older male cousin, Mordecai. And when they took her, Mordecai said, don't tell them you're Jewish, don't tell them about your faith or your culture, nothing. So she didn't, and she went in, and she got the beauty treatments, and she went in to the king. He liked her more than all the rest, so he married her. He made her queen, and, and threw this incredible party. So it's, it's kind of like rags-to-riches story. The little orphan Jewish girl becomes queen of the greatest empire in the world at that time, and you know similar to like Cinderella or Maiden Manhattan or Pretty Woman, one of those types of movies, right? similar, except more kidnapping is a little bit of that. So um, that's the story so far. Pretty interesting, right? That's where we find ourselves. But this story is told in a really specific way because the author, the writer, is trying to teach us a few things, and the first thing he's trying to show us is that we notice here there's no mention of God. No mention of God anywhere in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible that does not mention God by name. And not only does it not mention God, it doesn't talk about religion. doesn't talk about faith. There's no mention of prayer, reference to Bible, prophecy, nothing. Say, why why, why is this book even here in the Bible? Right? In fact, we'll see next week there are places when the writer actually has to actively avoid mentioning God. Like there's this place where Mordecai dons the uh, sackcloth and ashes. And we know from Jewish culture and from other books of the Bible, when he did that, it was a time of fasting and prayer and seeking God. But he doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention prayer. He actively just leaves that part out. And, and you say, like, it's, what is this? Is this an accident? Is it an oversight? No, I don't think the writer of Esther just, like, woke up one day and started reading it and said, oh, my gosh, I didn't even mention God in here. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't an accident. It's an intentional literary device. He's making a point. What's the point? You've got to understand the culture. The Jewish population at this time is in terrible danger. Like, they've been over and over throughout history. And in this moment, there's a whole lot of powerful forces at work trying to destroy them. Like, literally wipe them out, kill them, take their riches in the Jewish population. This has happened a lot throughout Scripture. And ordinarily, when we see this kind of stuff happening, how does God show up? Ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, fire from heaven, a pillar of fire, like, like water from a rock, food from the clouds. Like God shows up in these powerful, amazing ways, and it's really obvious that God is at work, right? Normally, God comes through with them in powerful, you know, the stuff of legends. You can't miss it. But here, there's no miracle. There's no fire from heaven. There's no water from a rock. There's no visions or dream, no mention of God at all. And that seems to be something that would leave us thinking, if you're not careful, God must be absent. And that's the point. In fact, when we get to the end of the book, we're going to see, and you can almost see it here, there's a whole string of coincidences that start to happen. That if they all wouldn't have happened, the Jewish people would have been wiped out. But because they happened, one after another after another, in the right order in which they happened, Esther's whole people were saved. Eventually, they're all saved. So let me show you what I mean. Um, let me uh, think about King Xerxes, right? King Xerxes gets lit, starts a six-month keger, right? And, and he, if he hadn't gotten drunk... If he hadn't gotten drunk and he hadn't demanded that of Vashti, that was crucial to God's plan because if it hadn't happened, Vashti would have stayed queen. But Esther has to become queen in order to save her people, right? And so Esther becomes queen, but if Esther hadn't been pretty, she wouldn't have become queen. So God gave her all this beauty way before she was even born so that she could win the pageant and and somehow work her way into the palace. But if Mordecai hadn't been, which we'll see later on, sitting one day randomly over at the side of the gate of the palace, listening to these guards who are concocting a plot against King Xerxes, if he hadn't been sitting there and overheard it, he wouldn't have told Esther, who would have told the king, and the king would have saved his life right? It would have saved the king's life, and he would have killed those guards. If all that wouldn't happen, the Jews wouldn't have been saved. But not only that, it's like when that happens, the king forgets to honor Mordecai. And so he goes around, and it's like one night, months later, he can't sleep, and he starts looking through the annals of all the things he's done, because that's what kings do when they don't sleep. And he's like, I am so great. And he realizes, I forgot to honor this guy who saved my life. And if he wouldn't have realized it at that point, if he would have honored him before, the Jews wouldn't have been saved. So there's a thousand little coincidences that happen when God seems absent, and yet God is present in these tiny little details that seem so insignificant. One coincidence after another, after another, they're just ordinary things. And when you look at the surface You miss it. When you're just walking along through this story and you see this random detail, this detail, you miss it. But when you start to see them all together, you start to see the hand of God. Think of it this way. When you see the ten plagues, you're like, oh, yeah, it's obvious that's God. But when you see Xerxes get drunk, you're not like, oh, there is God at work, right? (laughs) No, he's just drunk. And yet God's at work in it. Let's apply that to ourselves Throughout our everyday lives, you're going through stuff. You get fired. Go through a breakup. You have a bad day. You get cut off on your commute to work. It could be that small, right? So you ever have those guys that, like, pull, like, cut you off and then stop at the yellow light? And you're like, dude, I could have made that. What are you doing? Are you food poisoning? You know? You're never like, oh, there is God at work, you know? my belly. But that's the point of Esther. The book of Esther is screaming at us, don't make that mistake. Just because you don't see God at work in your life doesn't mean he's not working in your life because, you see, God is always at work in the seemingly insignificant details of your life. And if all these little coincidences hadn't happened, if the king hadn't gotten drunk that night, the Jews would have been wiped out. Well, the Jews weren't wiped out. What a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. God is at work. That's why this book was written. Nancy shared this example with me this week, and I loved it. She said, a little boy came up to his mom, and she was embroidering something. And he looked at it, and he said, what are you doing? Because from the underside, all you could see is this chaos and tangled threads his brokenness, and it looked uh, uh, really ugly, actually. But then she pulled him up in her lap, and she said, do you see the beauty? He saw the other side, and he saw the design, and the pattern, and the beauty. And sometimes in our life, we're like that little boy looking up at everything going on around us and saying, what are you doing, God? What we need is some eternal perspective. We need some of these moments where God can pull us up and show us the other side of things, what he's seeing, that there's pattern to the mystery, that there's design, that even the smallest little detail is not out of place in the thing that he's doing in the big picture. That's a big struggle for a lot of us. From our perspective, it appears to be a jumbled up mess, dark and formless and void, but God is at work creating something. God's silence is not his absence. His absence is never True, his hiddenness is not abandonment. He's working for your salvation. He's working to keep his promises, even when it looks like he's nowhere around. This week, Heidi said it. She was headed to uh, a meeting with Kenny and I, and she said, "Guys, I'm not going to be able to make the meeting." And I said, "It's okay. Don't don't worry about it. You okay?" She's like, "Yeah, this and this and this happened and." you know, I'm just not going to make it, but I think, you know, maybe God was saving me from getting a car accident on the way there or something. You never know. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's exactly right. When we start to think like that, like, God, you're up to a whole lot that I don't understand. All of a sudden, those little frustrating details of our day open up into this crescendo where we say, man, I don't understand exactly why this thread is here or why this thing looks so weird, but I do trust you. I trust you. Esther is trying to say it's always a bad move to get mad at God when you think he's absent. Because he's always at work. And when we're angry, we're looking at the embroidery from the wrong side. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. God is too, kind to, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That's the first point. God is always at work in spite of appearances. And a lot of us, you know, we focus on the appearances, right? We focus on the surface. And yet, God is at work beyond appearances. So the second thing Esther gets across in this chapter is the world is obsessed with appearances. Let me remind you uh, what's happening here. Chapter one, King Xerxes, why was the party 180 days? And by the way, man, if you're drinking for 180 days straight, you're going to get drunk, right? That's just, that's going to happen. So the guy's got this party going, 180 days. But the reason it's so long is because, you know, it's, he's parading all of his wealth, all of his possessions through the banquet hall with the golden seats, right? And as he's doing that, you know, it's like that scene from Aladdin. Prince Ali, fabulous! He Ali Ababa, right? And it's like just parading through the streets. He's got the monkeys. We want, right? It's it's that moment in Xerxes' life, and he's you're welcome. Uh, and and so it took him 180 days to parade all this stuff through the through the hall. But in chapter two, right, we have this international dating reality show, Persian Bachelor, whatever. And you see what's obvious right here, right? In Persian culture, most important thing about a man was his wealth and power, and the most important thing about a woman was her sexuality and beauty. say, man, glad we don't live there anymore. (laughs) How awful, how regressive, reprehensible, right? That look at these women treated like objects, and look at these men like, using their power showing everything off you know but honestly like if we're honest we're a lot more like them than we'd like to admit aren't we yeah. for all the superficial differences our world's pretty much the same our our world is king xerxes and the world says to us hey these externals your image your appearances matter more than your character the color of your skin matters more than the content of your character what you have Matters more than what you are. What you have on the surface, your, your beauty, your money, your talent, your connections, your, your prowess, whatever matters more than what's beneath. So what do we end up doing? We we all end up undergoing beauty treatments. Esther did, so do you and I, right? What do you think a resume is? What do you think a college degree is? What do you think a Facebook page is? Beauty treatments. This isn't just for women. This is for all of us. The world system is a lot like King Xerxes, and it says to all of us, unless you get these credentials, unless you get this kind of beauty or money or this kind of resume, unless you get these things, you're worthless. You need to perform. You need to do all this. Then maybe we'll approve of you. And that brings up an important, sensitive question, but we have to ask it. Are we concubines to the world system? Have we sold out? Have we capitulated to culture? Have we used their values as our values? Here's another way to ask it. And think of the different relationships in your life for a second. All kinds, coworkers, whatever, everybody. Do we assess our relationships based on what they give us? Like, are you finding your value or the value of other people based on you know, what one has, beauty, money, power, talent, connections. Like, is that how you're choosing mates? Is that how you're choosing friends? Is that how you're choosing careers? Are you going closer to people to whom it's more advantageous to draw close? Or are you going further from people who it's more disadvantageous to you to be in relationship with? Don't be so quick to say not me, right? Because that's actually the point of Esther. This question this book is asking us is, what motivates you? What's motivating your life? What's really driving you? What beauty treatments are you and I using to make ourselves presentable to the world around us, to, to our king, as it were? And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll admit we're, we're all affected by this. Hmm? Maybe you look at that and you say, well, fine, but look at Esther. She's not doing too hot. And she's not. Like, look at chapter two. In the first two chapters, I mean, what do you think of her record so far in this story? I'll tell you what I've been reading. As you read the commentaries from liberal to conservative, from Jewish to Christian, from secular to, to uh, religious, everybody agrees. In these first two chapters, Esther has totally blown it. Esther, she's completely sold out to the culture. For example, from a more liberal perspective, when they read Esther, they're absolutely disgusted with her. You know who they like? They like Vashti. 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 She stood up to the man. She said no. She was brave. She had a voice. But look at Esther. She's compliant. She's weak. She's docile. She does everything men want her to do, right? She does whatever Mordecai tells her to do. She does whatever Haggai, the guy in the harem, tells her to do. And that's how she rises to the top, you know, as the the 90s um, poets of, of the band Aqua said. She's a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. It. Okay. One feminist commentary I was reading was scathing. Here's a quote from the commentator. Esther becomes a blank page on which men can write what they want. Through completely selling out to the world system and making an idol out of feminine beauty and sexual prowess, she gets to her top perch. That's why the liberals are so appalled by Esther so far in the story, right? And you say, well, what about the conservatives? It's not just the liberals, right? No, conservatives, the rabbis, the pastors, the priests, they're ticked, too. They're in shock. Look, just, a, we're reading CBR right now. We're, anybody know what Old Testament book we're in in CBR? Daniel, yes. ha. Got some people still faithfully reading the Bible. I love it. Okay. And in Daniel, this is like at the time when Esther's great-great-grandparents were led away into captivity into Babylon, and Daniel and his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were led away into captivity, and they're in the court, too, of the king. And what do they do? They go into the court... And they say, hey, we're going to still stick to our diet, the the diet that the Mosaic law restricts us to. We're going to be good members of the court, but we're not going to bow down and worship your gods. And we're going to stick to this diet. And guess what happens? They're thrown into fiery furnaces to be burned, and they're thrown into lion's dens to be eaten, and God miraculously delivers them. That is Hester's heritage. And yet here she comes into the court, and she won't even say she's Jewish, and she just starts eating whatever they give her. They say, yeah, but that's just dietary laws. Yeah, and then she sleeps with the king. He's not her husband yet. He's not her husband yet, right? And then she marries him, and he's an unbeliever. And the conservatives say, oh, that is reprehensible. It is against the Mosaic law. It's so wrong. She's not honoring God. When scholars read Esther in chapter 2, everybody, liberal, conservative, secular, it doesn't matter, says she's a train wreck. She's sold out. She's capitulated culture. She's not a true believer. As you hear that stuff, like, what do you think of her? I'll tell you what I think. I, uh, I tend to give her a break. I'm like, yeah, but look at her situation. I mean, she's in this foreign power, of the king, like she could die. She's an orphan. She's just trying to get along, she's trying to survive. What choice did she really have? She's struggling. What choice did she really have? What could she do? But you know why I give her that break, and and maybe some of you do too? It's because we want to give ourselves that break. That's the point. We're here in a culture that's putting all kinds of pressure on us, and it's almost impossible to avoid. Let me put it another way. Nancy and I grew up here in San Diego, been living here for a long time, and whether you're Christian or not, we all tend to find relationships pretty much the same way, right? You walk into a room, there's 10 possibilities, and immediately eight of them are kind of off the table for you, right? Because on the outside, don't act like it's not true. I got like three laughs. I know some of you are like, yeah, it's, that's true, right? Because these people are either, maybe they're not attractive to us on the outside, or they don't have the right credentials or connections or talent or money or resume or social class. They don't have the externals we want. When we get into the room with 10 people, we immediately start ignoring eight of them. Now there's two left who do have the externals we want. And what do we do? We just kind of cross our fingers and hope to God that they have some kind of character, right? Hope that they're spiritually mature. So see, culture tells you how to make the first cut. And after that, we think about all the Christian stuff. And sadly, We've seen it over and over. What tends to happen um, is that sometimes it takes a long time to find a mate, to struggle to find one. Sometimes it never seems to happen. Sometimes we finally give up and say, forget this standard. Just forget it. It's never going to work for me. And as a result of this kind of shallow way of thinking, there are all kinds of wonderful relationships that we're just walking right by. All kinds of past you know, walking past all kinds of potentially wonderful futures. Why? Because Esther's world is our world. And if that's the truth, it can be kind of depressing. But there's a mini encouragement here and a mini challenge, okay? Mini encouragement and a challenge. So pause and look out over the entire story of Esther. Here's the encouragement. Like, are we guilty? Yeah, sure. I mean, are we shallow at times? Not. Y- I-, I am. I'll admit it, right? Do we, at some degree, tend to be concubines to the world? Are we going through beauty treatments? Are we exhausted? Do we find ourselves selling our souls for one night with the king, or our big chance, our big break, and then if that's going to fix everything? Are we doing that? Yeah, to some degree or another, all of us, all of us sitting here, whether aware of it or not, are like Esther here in chapter 2. Esther's gotten off to a horrible start. Everyone agrees, a terrible start, but here's what I love, okay? Okay? As bad as Esther was, by the end, she's like a superhero. Because God works with her. God stays with her. God's patient with her. God grows her. God transforms her into something great. And here's why that's so important. Because today as you sit here, no matter how badly you've screwed up your life, to No matter how horribly you've made some moves and decisions, you can't write yourself out of God's script. No matter how bad. I know how we tend to think. We tend to think, yeah, there's plan A and plan B, and I think I'm on plan B at this point. No, there's no plan B with God if Esther is true. You are in God's hands. You're in God's plans. He's at work weaving something beautiful out of your life, even if you're seeing the design from the bottom. And we see that not just in Esther. We see that through the entire Bible, don't we? we have, I have friends, liberal and conservative, and they get so eerie about certain people in the Bible. They're like, I think these people are supposed to be moral examples. But, but look at them. Abraham's a liar. And Moses is a coward. And Noah's a drunkard. and David, David's a sex addict and a murderer. <laughs> and Esther's weak, complicit in an oppressive system who are these people? I don't want to read this Bible. If you feel that way about reading the Bible, it shows you don't yet understand the message of the Bible. You're imposing your worldview on the Bible. Like Jeff said a couple Sundays ago, you're bringing your questions to God instead of letting him ask questions of you. You're assuming that the message of the Bible is that somehow God blesses and saves those who live good moral lives, and that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible over and over and over again is that God persistently and consistently gives his grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and don't even fully appreciate it after they get it. That's the message. That's grace. And that means that in spite of the fact that we are polluted by the world, that we're involved in all these beauty treatments in a broken kingdom, and that to a great degree many of us are concubines to the world system, God hasn't given up on us. He didn't give up on Abraham or Moses or Noah or David or Esther, and he hasn't given up on you either. God doesn't love people because of their actions, but in spite of their actions. Why? Because God has a different definition of beauty. God's definition of beauty is not based upon our outer appearances. Let me explain it this way. We have a system of measuring up, don't we? Hot or not, which way are you swiping? Let's look at the stats page, right? God's system is not our system, and that means, therefore, that God's beauty is not our beauty. At one point, remember in uh, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? The heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. This reminds me of one of my favorite, actually it's not, but it's got a good plot, Shallow Howl. This story, show of hands real quick, how many of you have actually seen this at some point or another? Okay, okay, so it's somewhat relevant. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending it, but the plot is worth talking about uh, because there's this guy named Hal, and his dad on his deathbed says something obscure about girls and being with the best and not settling. So Jack Black, um, his character's name is Hal, only dates girls that look perfect to him. But, but no girl ever looks perfect enough. He always finds something wrong. She's got a mole. She's got webbed feet. She, you know, whatever it is, he can't handle it. And his friends think he's crazy in that regard. And, and it all changes one day. He gets stuck in an elevator with self-help guru, Tony Robbins. <laughs> and in the middle of the elevator, Tony Robbins, like, casts a voodoo spell on him of some kind, right? And all of a sudden, when he walks out of the elevator, it's like he has x-ray vision. All of a sudden now, he can't really see somebody for what they are on the outside. He can only see the beauty that's on the inside. And so now his friends think he's crazy the other way, because they're seeing girls that they would interpret as not as beautiful as other girls in the culture, and he's going gaga over them. And he's chasing them, and they're like, dude, what are you doing, you know? And then there's these other girls that are beautiful that start seeing him talk to these other girls, and beautiful on the outside, and they'll come up, and they'll like he, he's the real thing, and they start talking to him. And he doesn't want anything to do with them because when he's seeing them, he's seeing them inside, for the broken ugliness that's in their soul, right? And so again, uh, not recommending that movie, but <laughs> it's it's uh, it's. it's it, I think the reason it had such commercial success is because it makes a point that really hits all of us square in the chest, and that is that in our culture, most of us are more like shallow how early in the story than we care to admit. We're mesmerized by appearance. The culture, the culture is like a water we swim in. The, the shallow waters of SoCal culture, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And shallow how seems to see underneath the surface, and he somehow gets, gets freed from all that. And I think many of us would actually like to experience a bit of what he experienced. Freedom from all the facades, freedom from all the fakery. We'd like to be free from playing the world's games of fashion and sex appeal and chicness and beauty treatments. We, we'd like to look under the surface and say, this person has a beautiful soul, though they may seem somewhat, uh, somewhat unsightly to some. And this person has a putrid soul, though they may seem beautiful on the outside to some. We, we wouldn't be as caught up in whether people are attractive, intelligent, but as we are, many of us are steeped in the thinking of the world. And as a result, we're probably worried and filled with anxiety all the time. And as a result, we're probably unable to part with material things. And as a result, we're depressed and angry and hurting and exhausted. They all go together. And Jesus deals with them all, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. Read it if you haven't. When we look at life on its appearances, we are overwhelmed. We make all these bad choices in our life because we're seeing things like shallow how early in the story. But God shows us what beauty is, that it's different from what the world says beauty is. And we may not be able to get past it. We may be continuing this, this, this broken cycle of judging books by their cover, and we're valuing ourselves, and we're valuing other people on the basis of beauty and money and talent and power and connections and resumes. So what should we do about it? What's gonna break us out of the cycle? Is there any way out? Third point, God freezes to see beyond appearances. In this world, King Xerxes says to you, hey, look, I'll marry you. I'll marry you, you're in. But you have to be beautiful, you have to work hard, you have to have all these beauty treatments, you have to sacrifice yourself. Then, if you do all this, I'll approve of you. And that's exhausting. But do you know what God says to us? Throughout scripture, over and over in the Bible, God actually says, I don't want to just relate to you as king, I want to relate to you as a husband relates to a wife. And at first, it sounds great, but when you really think about it, that can be even more terrifying. Like, if trying to appeal to Xerxes standards is hard, how do you think it is trying to appeal to God's perfect standards? Like, think about it. Oh, my word, God, what, what kind of beauty treatments would I have to be in to, to appeal to God? Like, how much would I have to read the Bible? How often would I have to pray? What good deeds would I have to do in my life? I'd have to be so ethical, so moral, so selfless. I'd have to do all these sorts of things. It sounds exhausting. It sounds crushing. It sounds awful. But the book of Esther gives us hope. Because right now, if you look at Esther through the world's eyes, on the front, she seems beautiful. But, but underneath the surface, if you really saw her through shallow howls, x-ray vision, right? right now, chapter 2, you actually wouldn't see this beautiful woman, would you? See somebody shrinking back and cowardly. Right now she's not beautiful on the or she's beautiful on the outside but she may seem beautiful on the outside but when we, we see her falling in line with culture when we see her becoming part of the system and selling her morality and ethics to the highest bidder I don't know why. Why is she doing it? Maybe she's afraid. Maybe she's proud. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in her heart but spiritually speaking she's not a beauty to God right now is she? And yet God hasn't finished with her. He sees past all her broken appearances to who he's reforming and reshaping her to become. God takes Esther by the hand and brings her along as the book goes on. He never gives up on her. He stays patient with her. He loves her. He turns her into a different person where the beauty on the inside matches the beauty on the outside, right? In fact, it surpasses it. What's that mean? It means that God is not like a spouse, like anyone else here would ever experience. Because this, you get a little foretaste here in Esther of what we have in Ephesians 5. Remember Ephesians 5? I think Kenny quoted it last week. Paul's talking to the church and he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, gave himself up for her to to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish. That's the kind of king Jesus is. That's the kind of husband, spouse, Jesus is. Esther was loved by the world because she was already beautiful, but Jesus loves you in spite of your flaws in order to make you beautiful. Esther had to give her life and sacrifice her freedom for the king, but Jesus Christ is the only king and the only spouse who gives up his life and freedom for you. He gives up everything for you. Not because you're lovely, but to make you lovely. He was bound, he was sold by for 30 pieces of silver, he was pierced. And that shows the the radical difference between God and the world. And once you understand what he did for you, if you really understood this, not just on the surface, but deep, deep in your soul beneath the surface, you'd be free from the world's appearances. You'd be free from the beauty treatments being placed upon you and being free from placing those beauty treatments upon others. You'd be free to see beyond the appearances of your situations, to see God working in the small details. What what side of the embroidery are you looking at? You'd be free from the appearances of of yourself and others externally or internally. You'd be free to see yourself and others as God sees, broken yet beautiful. Already but not yet, you're in his presence. And then, only then, will you be able to love God as he's loved you without living in hiding and fear and shame and guilt. And only then will you be able to give that grace because you've received it, be able to bring transformation to the world around you because you've been so transformed. That's why we need to experience a different definition of beauty. Do you know what that definition of beauty is? I'll close with this. In this world, if you want to be beautiful, as the world is thinking what beauty is, financially beautiful, physically beautiful, or whatever, if you want to be beautiful the way the world insists you should be beautiful, all the emphasis is on the surface. And, and what's that do? It makes you self-obsessed. Every time you walk past a mirror, you look, right? I live in downtown. It's really hard for me because every building has mirrors all over Right? <laughs> Get a whiplash. You're just always thinking about you. And when you see Jesus who had ultimate beauty, beauty beyond bearing, beauty beyond belief, glory, splendor with the Father, giving up all of that for us and becoming human and going to the cross, the the book of Isaiah says he had no beauty that would draw us to him. Why? Because he gave that beauty up. When I see him giving up his beauty for me, I finally see what true beauty is. I get a new definition because of what he's done for us. We'll finally have the love we've been longing for. And once you know that, you can live lives of greatness and selflessness and true beauty. Real beauty is not self-obsession. Real beauty is self-sacrifice. And God has sacrificed everything to have you, and he's placed that beauty he gave up within you. You're beautiful. You're complete, you're whole in Christ. You're loved. You're defined by grace. You're defined by what he's done for you, not by anything you can do for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace, for talking to us about these great things. Thank you that, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the ultimate king and the ultimate spouse. Thank you that you did not force us to make ourselves beautiful. You make us beautiful. You did not require us to sacrifice everything for you. You sacrificed for us. So now we want to give our lives for you. It's it's worship. It's joy. We want to follow you. We want to follow you even, even through the hard times of our lives where everything seems jumbled up and the threads seem to be coming through at the wrong places because because you walk through those kinds of places for us and because we know when we walk through them, you are with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You'll go to the fire with us. You will go through the lion's den with us. You will go through the beauty treatments with us. You've taken it all on for us, God, and we pray that you would help us now live lives of greatness and live lives of joy that comes from knowing these truths we've studied in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.